From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy will spend $10 million to start repairs to the USS Bonhomme Richard after a fire damaged or gutted 11 of the ship's 14 decks. The Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday, writes to the Navy's admirals and master chiefs that sections of the ship's flight deck are warped or bulging. Defense News reports General Dynamics NASCO San Diego got the contract. Its shipyard is where the ship was docked when it caught fire last week. Todd Simpson's joining the Department of Veterans Affairs as its Deputy Assistant Secretary for DevSecOps. He's leaving the Chief Product Officer job at the Department of Health and Human Services. He's worked at the Transportation Department and the Food and Drug Administration, too. FedScoop reports he served in the Air Force and Air Force Reserves for a total of six years. The State Department will automate parts of its help desk with robotic process automation. A request for information from the agency's Office of Consolidated Customer Support says the winning contractor will develop a minimal viable product pilot and test it with end users to track success. GCN reports CCS wants the contractor to deliver in four 30-day sprints. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is working major disaster declarations in all 50 states and in U.S. territories at the same time for the first time in history. The House Homeland Security Committee is already doing oversight of the FEMA response. Chris Curry's Director of Emergency Management, Disaster Recovery and DH, uh, DHS Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Chris, thanks for coming on the program. What was the major message you wanted to take to the House Homeland Security Committee at this hearing? Thanks, Francis, for having me. Two big things. Uh, one was just to explain FEMA's role and its responsibilities in the COVID-19 response. As everybody knows now, we haven't had a pandemic like this in 100 years. So just explaining what each agency was doing and what FEMA's role in that was, was, was a big part of that because everything is so new. The second big thing was that unlike prior disasters where we can only look back at the response and make improvements for what might happen in the future, you know, we're still responding to this pandemic and there are real opportunities to address some of the challenges we face right now moving forward. You identified five primary areas where you're seeing or expect to see challenges based on work you've been doing all across FEMA, all across DHS for a number of years, Chris. A couple of them I want to ask you about. One of them's contracting. Where are you seeing issues with contracting and what are the possible roadblocks that DHS and FEMA in particular could run up against in a pandemic type response? Well, Francis, really since Hurricane Katrina, we've seen many, many uh, pre and post disaster contracting challenges whenever you have a large disaster. Um, and, you know, the pandemic is just multiplying that by by 50. So there are 57 active parallel disaster declarations right now across every state, D.C., uh, the territories and uh, several tribes. And so, you know, even in the largest disasters we've had, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Maria, uh, we've never faced this kind of concurrent need for supplies and contracting resources. So in the past, FEMA has really been struggling with its ability to pre-position contracts to handle these types of disasters and have the number of qualified people it needs to manage these at the contracting level. So you can only imagine what's what's happening right now. What they've done to address that is call in uh, the other federal troops, mainly the Department of Defense, to bring in their contracting expertise and resources to help that. 
one of the things that's challenging about this entire response, not just for the general public to understand, but even within the federal government, is exactly who's supposed to be doing what. Second item that you told Congress about was exactly that, about medical supply acquisition and distribution. The Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, was on CNBC this morning saying, we're hardly getting any requests for uh, PPE. The fact of the matter is, those are supposed to go to FEMA, so it's no wonder HHS really isn't getting those requests. What are you seeing and what does FEMA need to watch as far as that distribution of PPE in the stockpile uh, that uh, holds that PPE? Yeah, that's, that's the million dollar question right now. Really in March when FEMA was brought in, uh, I think they and DOD, their partners at DOD, quickly saw that uh, the strategic national stockpile, which HHS manages, was just not adequate to cover a pandemic like this. On top of that, HHS really didn't have the resources and the contracting authority and the relationships across the country like, like FEMA has had to actually get those supplies where they needed. So the first step was to set up new structures to actually be able to get the PPE where it's needed, uh, contract for the PPE they don't have, and then get it sent out uh, to the states. I think what we're seeing right now, and what we're looking more at now is how these requests are coming into the state, and you're right, it is uh, primarily through FEMA, uh, and then how FEMA and the Department of Defense and HHS are actually filling those needs. Um, again, I'll go back to the scale of this and just all these requests coming in. There's no nationwide system per se, because we've never faced this, for managing and logistically tracking all of these supplies and where they're going to the states and to the private sector. You can't forget about that too. So literally we're in the middle of trying to develop those systems right now. And that's one thing we're looking at. Um, the last one that we have time to talk about, Chris, is the after action reporting, which I ask lots of guests about what's gonna go into your after action report. And I guess that's why it's a little bit disconcerting to see you write uh, and testify. GAO reported in May 2020, FEMA hasn't consistently completed prior after action reports. I, I wonder what you found about what they knew about what they did as you went back. I mean, you mentioned all the way back to Katrina. How did they know where they went wrong and how to fix it for next time? This has been a problem, Francis, we've found for, for 10 to 15 years now is that uh, one, we don't always complete the after-action reports after these types of disasters. And then two, and even bigger maybe, is we don't often follow up. The government doesn't often follow up to close the gaps. You know, many times, kind of like this pandemic, you have a whole-of-government multi-agency response. Some agencies will do good after-action reporting and follow-up. Others won't do it at all. The best example we have with the pandemic is the Crimson Contagion exercise that was done uh, just last year. Uh, which identified many of the challenges and the gaps that we're seeing right now, such as communication with states and localities about uh, PPE needs. Chris, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, great to learn what you talked to Congress about. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Up next, improving government collaboration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a horizontal and vertical look at hitting cross-agency priority goals. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Office of Management and Budget has a new update on the cross-agency priority goals in the president's management agenda. The changes refle uh, reflect progress OMB says it's made on the PMA. 
The National Academy of Public Administration has new recommendations for the next administration whenever it starts to emphasize greater collaboration in government. Terry Gerton's president and CEO of Napa. Terry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you think the intersection is between the work that you and your colleagues at Napa are doing on improving collaboration in government and what we're seeing in the CAP goals and the PMA? Well, one of the things we're doing with uh, this particular grand challenge, Francis, so we just released an action plan um, on how the next administration, whether that's reelected or newly elected, can engage better um, to build public trust. And a number of the recommendations get directly to how OMB can use the cross-agency performance goal process to drive change across the federal agency space. What does that look like from uh, from an, an, an at an enterprise level, Terry? Because what you what it sounds like you're describing is even if a cap goal doesn't apply particularly to a certain agency or a collection of agencies, the entire process can drive change in every agency across government. Is that what you're getting at? Absolutely. I mean, every agency can use their strategic planning process, their learning agenda to uh, put goals in place and OMB using the cap goal process links them directly to the uh, president's management agenda so that the uh, public can track performance. And one of the things we think is especially important is that those cross-agency performance goals then allow um, the actual agencies, especially those with human-centered uh, services delivery mechanisms to work in a more collaborative way to really focus on the outcomes of their programs and less about the compliance and um, tracking processes that keep them sort of stovepiped. You make an observation there that I think is interesting, Terry, because you talk about each agency's strategic planning process, and that's important. And I wonder what your sense is of what the enterprise-wide strategic planning process is whether the cap goals are coming along behind those and saying, okay, you have these individuals' strategic uh, goals and we're going to try to tie them together, or whether we're getting to a point where we're starting to turn that around and think about strategic goals across government to start with and then how the agencies fulfill those goals. Well, I think OMB is doing um, a great job in terms of having those strategic briefings with every agency. Uh, normally on a sort of a quarterly uh, cycle. And so as they do that, and as that becomes more integrated, the agencies are, are doing better about reporting their performance. The trick with the cap goals is really then to get multiple agencies working on the same objective. Um, and that's really key to improving the delivery of the program. One of the things that I think is particularly useful about the work that you and your colleagues do at Napa is that it's horizontal and vertical. You're not just looking at the federal government, you're looking at the integrations with state, local, and, and uh, other jurisdictions. And that's especially important as we think about the COVID response, where that level of integration and interactions probably higher than ever before. Um, what does that look like? What are some of the recommendations that you're making about better governance at, in that vertical as well as the horizontal level? Well, you know, one of the things that the Academy has, has been really strong, a really strong advocate for is improving the intergovernmental relationships. And you're right, the COVID uh, crisis and the racial justice protests have really demonstrated that we've got a long way to go in making those processes work better. And so when you think about the CAP goals, again, going back to that, agencies need to be thinking about how they work better with that next layer down with the state level or even with the local uh, grantees that they give out the money to 
to make sure that they're tracking outcomes and delivering better uh, better results for citizens. And that kind of gets back to creating or recreating that civic layer where uh, citizens and residents are engaged in government decision-making sort of all the way through the process. You've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation and in other conversations we've had, Terry, the importance of tracking outcomes as opposed to just documenting compliance. Where have you seen examples at any level of government, where have you and your colleagues at Napa seen good examples of that that other people could borrow, copy, whatever you want to call it? We're starting to see a lot of that happen at the local levels um, and in counties, where counties are engaging all of the different service providers, hospitals, um, housing providers, uh, education providers, to really integrate their data sets and, and measure the outcomes for their community. So it's really focused then on, is the individual uh, accessing all of the different county services, for example? And so we're seeing a lot of improvement in that space, and we want to both raise that up to the federal level so that the federal agencies are, are better engaged in thinking about that on the front end of their programs and connecting it all the way through the system from federal, state, and local. You've got uh, the work that you've done in this posted at NapaWash.org, and one of the things that you write about, that your team writes about uh, on a couple of occasions in the work on this, Terry, is about building capacity. Is that just more people? Is that just more money? Or is it more detailed than that? Is there more to it than that? Well, it's capacity in terms of skills, it's capacity in terms of infrastructure, especially on the IT side, um, it's capacity in terms of data, it's capacity in terms of analytics. So it's not just more people, although more people helps in terms of uh, being able to reach more citizens, but it's really building the sharing infrastructure, um, whether that's communication tools, whether that's performance metrics, uh, whether that's uh, on the front end of making uh, systems and processes easier for citizens to access so that they can have a better experience with the work. What is the federal government's role in your view in that capacity building not just for itself but for these other organizations with which they interact? Well I think we're seeing a lot of it now in the um, supplementals that are coming out to deal with the pandemic. Right? The federal government is pushing funds out so that states and localities can, for example, improve their election system so that, that they have the capacity um, to actually manage the next election. And that's one of the first papers that we focused on. Um, it's providing more resources so that um, communities can invest in the IT systems that they need to promote their telework and to engage their citizens um, who can't come in face to face but now need to engage with them um, remotely. So. It's providing the resources so that uh, communities can engage their citizens in a productive way, given the new way that we have to operate. Terry Gurton, thanks very much as always. Appreciate your time. Francis, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Up next, reimagining 3D printing to help veterans. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the 3D March Forward at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Healthcare pros at the Department of Veterans Affairs have a new tool to provide the care veterans need. They're using 3D printed versions of the patient's actual organs. 
Dr. Beth Ripley is leading the effort for the VA. She's national director of the VA 3D Printing Network. She's a finalist for a Service to America medal in the science and environment category. Beth, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the program. How does this process work where you're getting something from MRI to printer to the hands of the healthcare provider? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of amazing how it works. So you take the images, normal images that the patients had, CT, MRI, as you said. Now those images are all two-dimensional slices. If you thought about like a loaf of bread and you had all those slices, you put it back together, you have a whole loaf of bread. Well, same thing with our anatomy. Um, so you can take all of those slices feed them into a 3D printer and it will create, recreate slice by slice that patient's anatomy. So let's say it was your heart. You came in, you are having some heart pain. Uh, we wanted to make sure that the valves in your heart looked okay. We would take that image, put it into the 3D printer and uh, a couple hours later, we could take out a near exact replica of your heart and hand it to you or your doctor. What does that, what leg up does that, no pun intended, does that give the, uh, the healthcare provider what can he or she do with that in his or her hands that that person couldn't do before as they provided care? Well, there are so many things that it can do, but I think the most important thing is it's really hard to take all those slices and put them back together in your head into a three-dimensional image. Uh, that takes a lot of uh, computational processing and training. This takes all of the work out of it and it gives them that snapshot right then to not only see it, but to feel it, interact with it, turn it, um, even cut it open um, and practice on it. And so it takes away all of the surprises, the unknown, the uncertainty, and the um, educated guessing about what you're gonna see when you walk into surgery. So just like golf, would you ever you know, not take a practice swing? Why not? do the same thing here and get a lay of the land, practice, um, and really understand what you're up against when you walk into the operating room. So the cut it open piece is fascinating. That means when you're printing this, since you're printing every slice, the construct of the organ is the same on the inside as it is on the inside of the person too. So it's not just a blob that you're given to somebody. It really is, a, it's almost a replica made out of whatever the stuff is that the printer spits out. Oh, it's totally a replica. And part of the amazing thing that's happened in the past years uh, with 3D printing is that we have thousands of different types of materials, so we can start to mimic the material properties that you would feel in the heart. So there's a lot of science um, and um, engineering that's gone into creating these materials to feel like you're cutting through bone, feel like you're cutting through the heart. And yes, you can open it up and see all of those things that you normally couldn't see. Um, and so it's given us a great opportunity not only to practice, which, by the way, can save one to two hours of surgery. Um, it can avoid poor outcomes by knowing what you're up against. Um, the patient has less anesthesia, so all fantastic um, things that mean a better outcome for that patient, that they're going to walk out of the hospital faster, feeling better, but also training uh, for our next uh, you know, family of physicians, nurses, and other healthcare providers that can practice on models and get it right before they ever practice on a patient. It's pretty amazing the, the level of detail that you're talking about, Beth, 
When you were on the program the last time, you brought a skull and we talked about some of these same kinds of issues. You also talked about some of the more mundane things that you're printing now, but that you're able to do in bigger quantity than before. What are some of the things that people might not think are as high profile, but are equally important to healthcare providers right now? Well, actually, the last three months, we have been heavily involved in trying to understand how to print all of the things that we take for granted with a normal supply chain that can be in short supply during COVID-19. So we've been working on 3D printing face shields, um, 3D printing surgical masks, uh, nasal swabs is the newest one that we're looking into. So it can help with healthcare in many ways. This wasn't the way that we imagined um, pre-COVID-19, but that's part of the, the magic of 3D printing is it is a tool that you put into the hands of frontline staff and that we can use to answer whatever questions or needs there are. We have about a minute left, Beth. Um, what's next? What, what, can, what are you trying to print at some point in the future that maybe you can't today? Or, or what are you, where are you going right now? Well, actually, what's next is living tissue. Um, so we are working within the VA on being able to print living bone so that we could replace injuries um, specifically to the face. If you think about cancer, malignancies, trauma, um, being able to replace that bone. So I hope that I could come back and show you a living bone in the next year or two. Wow, that's a very short timeline. Dr. Beth Ripley, thanks very much for coming on. Congratulations on your selection as a Sammy's finalist. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.